Let's look at a, just a short passage here in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Now remember the context. These Galatians are being deceived by false teachers who are saying it's belief plus good works equals salvation. It's not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved and then good works will follow. And so Paul says to them, formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Man writes from Singapore. Galatians is spiritual dynamite. Therefore, it's almost impossible to handle it without explosions. The great spiritual awakening that occurred in Martin Luther's life came as a result of him studying and expositing the letter of Paul to the Galatians. It was a series of sermons on Galatians that changed the life of John Wesley. Small wonder both men love this letter so deeply because they believe that the experience that Paul was writing about was not only his own and the Galatians, but their own as well. It's not just simply a letter for, for people living in the past. You can't read it in comfortable detachment. At every point, it challenges shallow, easy acceptances, and it provokes opposition. In other words, it's a very confrontational letter, especially in the second half, and that's where we are. Years ago, I told you the story about a golf club, not a club, but a club, uh, a famous country club in Texas, where there was a famous teacher, Harvey Penick, and he was teaching a member, and so the member was warming up, hitting some shots, and every shot went to the right, and Penick said to him, let me just change your grip a bit, and so he adjusted his hands, and, and the man instantly said, no, that doesn't feel right, I, I think I need to put them back where they were. And so he did. And he hit the ball further to the right. Penix said, I need to change your stance. If I can't deal with your hands, I'll deal with your feet. So I'm going to change your stance. And so he got him in that position. He said, hit a couple of balls. He did. And the guy said, I don't like that. I want to go back to the way I was. And he went back to the way he was and he hit him further to the right. And there was a man who was sitting there observing all of this. And he noticed that after two pieces of advice, Penick would just nod when the man said, here's what I think. And so after a half hour, Penick took the man's money. The guy walked off. And the observer came to him and said, sir, I don't understand it. You are a world-class teacher, but when you started, you gave advice and the person wouldn't, this guy wouldn't take it. But then he began to give the advice and you simply listened and nodded. Can you explain that to me? And Penix said, son, listen to me. I learned a long time ago. It's impossible to sell lessons to a man who only wants to buy echoes. That's true. 
And nowhere is that more true than in the church of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you the number of people I know who say to me in a variety of ways, that's what you think. That's what the scriptures say as far as you're concerned, but I sort of believe what I believe. It's what I've always been taught. You know, back in the Roman Empire, wealthy people always wanted to adorn their houses and their temples with marble. The problem was marble was incredibly expensive. It was very difficult to mine, and it was also difficult to find pieces that weren't in some way flawed, little cracks or blemishes. So you know what they do? They would mine the marble, and they would find a crack or a blemish, and they would put wax in it. And then they would smooth the wax down and then shine it up so that the blemish or the crack would disappear. And they'd sell it at full price. And within a few weeks or months when that marble would be laying wherever it was or standing where it was, the crack would begin to appear because the wax would shrink. And suddenly the customer would realize that they had gotten a defective piece of marble and paid full price. And so the people of Rome began to protest. They came to the merchants and they said, you must prove to us that the marble that we pay full price for is perfect. And so they developed a stamp. And they'd stamp on the marble this one word. you know what the word was? Seen, or sine, meaning without. And sere, which means wax. From which we get the word sincere. Do you know what it means to be sincere? Literally? Without wax. Nothing hidden. No blemishes that are being masked. That's how Paul is to these people at Galatia. Somebody has said the letter to the Galatians is one long, sensitive counseling session. Now remember who Paul is talking to here. These are people that have come to faith through his ministry. He's devoted to them. These are people that came out of paganism. Lascivious living. I mean, people with no sense of morality at all. They came to trust Christ. And now, Paul is not offering them shallow advice, but he's getting down into the heart of the matter. And when he hears that they're reverting to old patterns, when he hears that their hearts are bending to their natural affections, he doesn't rip them, he doesn't diss them, he engages them. And in these few verses... He answers three questions that are questions that you and I ought to keep in front of us at all times because we're just like the Galatians. First question, what are these non-gods that I tend to worship? Second question, how do they enslave me? 
Third question. How can I ever get free of their bondage? So what are the non-gods? How do they enslave me? And how do I get free? Do you sin? Let's be honest. (laughs) No wax. Why? What does it do to you? And how can you ever get free? Those are the questions Paul answers in these four verses. So let's dig in. First of all, notice. Oh, and by the way, he continues this for at least a chapter and a half. So if you miss it today, we'll be back. First of all, notice the identity of these non-gods. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul uses the same word slavery three times in seven verses. In verse 3, he says, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In verse 9, he says, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you you want to be once more? And then in verse 8, he says, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So what's he talking about? What are these elementary principles of the world to which they were enslaved? Well, the word here is stokia in Greek. And it literally means something that underlies a position or a behavior. And so what Paul is talking about here is not just their old patterns of behavior, you know, sacrificing, observing certain rituals, circumcising themselves, festivals. He's talking about why they do those things. Why do they want to go back? What is underlying? What is the reason? What's the desire? You see, it's not just the behavior that Paul's concerned about. He's concerned about why. What are the motives? What are the motives of the heart? What are the passions that underlie them? You see, in Paul's day, everybody worshipped a God that they believed was behind something in nature. For instance, there were those who believed that if they were farmers, they would worship the earth. But they really didn't worship the earth. They worshipped the God behind the earth the God of good crops. And the reason they did it was because they wanted to grow good crops because they wanted to feed their family and themselves. If you happen to be a a seafaring uh, fisherman, you not only believed that there was the sea that you were on, but there was a God of the sea. And so you would pay homage to this God of the sea who would provide you with a catch so that you and your family could eat. If you were a man or a woman and you had no children, or maybe you were just getting together, you would worship the God of fertility because you wanted children. Why? Because you wanted heirs and you also wanted workers. And what Paul is talking about is that behind every God... And behind every behavior that is associated with that God is a hidden agenda. 
There's a motive, there's a passion, there's a reason why we act religiously in order to gain something. Remember how first John how first John ends, you know, John the gospel writer also writes three epistles. Remember how the first epistle that he writes ends five chapters. His last verse in chapter 5 says this, little children keep yourself from idols. And there are many commentators over the centuries that have said John must have gone a little nuts because he's written 104 verses and he's never mentioned idols to the very last sentence, little children keep yourself from idols. So what's going on? They say it's a total non sequitur. They say he must have sort of gone batty when he wrote that. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones disagrees. Now remember, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was not only a doctor of theology, he was also a medical doctor, so he knew what it meant to be a bit crazy. He said, John says nothing about idols till the last verse because it perfectly summarizes all that he says. And what he says in this letter is that when you fail to live in the light as God is in the light, when you fail to live loving one another as God loved you, it reveals your idolatry. In fact, the greatest danger facing us as Christians is not our actions or our deeds, but the motives that underlie every behavior. Think about the Ten Commandments. There are ten of them, but commandment three through ten flow from one and two. In fact, if you fail and you break three through ten, it's because, it's not because you're weak or you're sinful, it's because you've put something in the place of God. There's something that you value more than Him. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. Something besides Jesus has become your beauty. That's what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Something in your life has become your God. It occupies the place that Jesus once occupied. It's something that you believe you can't live without. It's something that controls you. It's something that attracts you. It's something that, that you feel as though if you give it enough time, give it enough energy, give it enough treasure, it'll all work out for you. Someone has said, when something good becomes your best, it becomes your deity, and you become a slave to it. When something good becomes your best, that thing becomes your deity, and you're enslaved to it. It could be your children and their success. I mean, it's good to love your kids, but when they become the best, when you live and die on them, they become your idol. Maybe your job, maybe your career, maybe it's your boyfriend, maybe it's your girlfriend, maybe it's your Facebook page. Because maybe, just maybe, it's what people think of you that runs your life. Maybe it's your dream. See, Paul's not lecturing. 
Paul's not getting in their face. He's emphasizing. He knows what it's like to have his stokia controlling him. He knows what it's like to worship gods that are not gods. So that's the first point. The identity of the gods. Let's look at the second point. The impact of this slavery. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Now notice here, he mentions slavery three times in seven verses, but this slavery is different. He says, how can you turn back and become slaves once more? You see, it's a voluntary slavery. It's a slavery of choice. These are Christians. They've been freed, but they want to go back and live like slaves. And he says, why would you choose to do that? Now, normally when Paul talks about this, often he'll use a word that can be translated lust or sinful desire. And what he's saying is, don't follow your lusts. Sacrifice your flesh. But he doesn't use that word here. He uses a word that literally means supersized desire. What he means is a decent desire has become overblown. It's a desire that says, I've got to have it now. If I don't get this, I'll be far less than I am. And what the idol does is it takes a normal, good, healthy desire and turns it into a supersized desire that enslaves us. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. When you find yourself having to sin, always look for the chain to the idol. He gives you an example. Let's say you're burdened by bitterness. You can't get rid of this bitterness you have towards somebody. You say, this person has wronged me. I can't forgive him. And Lloyd-Jones says the reason you're holding on to your bitterness is not because of what that person did to you. It's because of what your heart tells you you lost because of it. See it? When you say, I cannot forgive this person because of what they did for me, it's not what they did to you that matters to you. It's what they did and what it affects in your life. What you lost. How many times have you heard somebody say, you know, God's forgiven me, I can't forgive myself. You know why people say that? You know why you say that? You know why I say that? It's not because of the severity of the sin. It's because what has been lost because of it. Maybe that sin helped you lose your job. Maybe that sin fractured your reputation. Maybe that sin cost you money. Maybe that sin ended a relationship. You see, it's your desire for what's been lost that enslaves you. It's the desire that says, I'm worthless. I'm no good. I've blown it too bad. My regrets are so great, I might as well just die. That's what Paul's talking about. And under the pressure of the false teachers, the Galatians have chosen to go back to a religion to satisfy their need. 
to do something to make themselves acceptable again. Think of the prodigal and his brother. The prodigal son and his brother. They're both equally lost. But it's only the prodigal who comes into the house. It's only the prodigal who gains a glimpse of his father's beauty and he comes in and he experiences what it means to be accepted. By going in that door, the prodigal is saying, yes, Father, I accept that you accept me. But the older brother doesn't do it. He doesn't go in the house, remember? I'm not going to go back in, he says. Why? Because he's in bondage. He's enslaved to his religious view of himself. And religious slavery is the worst kind because... It always masks our motives. It, also in, it always enslaves us into thinking that we're better than ourselves, than we really are. And it makes us believe that somehow we can justify ourselves. And so that religious son stays outside. And he never knows what it's like to accept the acceptance of his father. Third, finally... Notice the illumination. Look at verse 9 again. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back? You see what Paul's saying? How can you reject the acceptance of God? How can you go and be enslaved again to the stoichia of your life, these motives, these desires that are unfulfilled, how can you not realize the Father has given you everything? How can you go back into your chains? Think of what the Lord's done for you. He's made you His own Son through the work of His Son. He sent His Spirit into your heart so that you might know your true identity in Him. His whole purpose in sending His Spirit into you is to show you how safe and secure and loved you are. You want to hear what Paul says about himself? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen to what he says. I don't care who judges me. I don't care if a court judges me. I don't care if I judge myself. It is God who judges me. You know what he says? You know what he means? I don't care what anybody thinks, including me. I know what God thinks of me. Because the Lord, my Father, sees me complete in Jesus. Do you know the only cure for idolatry? It's the gospel. The only cure for sin is knowing grace. And knowing that you don't have to earn it. Because any attempt to earn it is a fool's game. The only way the chains of the idols are broken is the truth of the gospel that affects your heart. He begins to change the affections of your heart. Only the gospel can make us free to know the truth. And you know what the truth is? The truth is this. 
the Father says to every one of us, You are my child forever, no matter what. You see, according to Paul, the only way to free yourself from sin and idols is to be captivated by the beauty of Jesus. It's to be so enamored with Jesus that everything else pales. Remember Hudson Taylor who started as the first Christian missionary to China back in the mid-1800s? He was in China for 51 years. And that's where he died. And when he died, people that came into his room found his diary right next to his bed. It's a diary he wrote in every day, and you can read his diary. But in that diary, there was one page that was loose, dog-eared. It looked like he had taken it out and read it every day and then put it in the next entry. You know what was on that page? These words. Lord Jesus, make yourself to me a living, bright reality. More present to faith's vision keen than any object ever seen. More dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. You know what kept Hudson Taylor going every day? He read that prayer. Every day he asked for a fresh view of Jesus. But because he knew that the only way he could be free from these idols was to fix his eyes on Jesus. And you know something? If you and I took a prayer like that and we made it our own every day, there's no way Jesus would not meet you every day. You know why? Because he's more interested in being intimate with you than you even want to be intimate with him. After all, he was lost so that you could be found. He was rejected so that you would be accepted forever. Now, that's some pretty good counseling, isn't it? It's not over. We get about 12 more sermons of it. <laughs> Thanks to Paul and the Holy Spirit's work in his life. Think about that. Amen.